you get into adulthood and you're just you. And then, then you're you, the person, but also you, the whatever your career is. You're you, the doctor, or you're you, the whatever, you know, tree specialist. That's a piece of your identity. And then as you change careers, you add other levels of your identity. So then you're the former tree specialist, now veterinarian or whatever. Um, and then in addition to your professional layers of identity, you have different personal layers of identity. Like you said, you are at different points in your life, maybe a partner or a parent. And by the time you get a decade or a decade and a half into adulthood, that's, it's a lot that you're carrying around all those identities. That was Mary Laura Philpot, and you're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 173. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me. The podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. I'm so glad you're here. It's been a while, huh? (laughs) I hope the past four months have been fun for you, have treated you well. So much has happened for me personally while the show was on hiatus. Let's see. Um... I hiked 700 miles of the PCT, I moved out of my home and into my teeny tiny van, I road tripped across the country and hosted the first three of this summer's wonderful Real Talk retreats, oh, they were so good, and lots more. It's been an intense and fun and hard four months for sure. Also in that time frame, sort of the other big thing that's happened with the feedback and support of our Patreon community, I restructured the format of this show. We made the change from a per season model, which you'll remember where a full eight episode season was released all at once, about five times per year, and we've switched to a per episode model. So that means that going forward, I'll be making three podcast episodes per month for you, released one at a time instead of all at once. And after what, four years? Yeah, it's been almost four years of making this podcast. I'm excited for the change, and I hope that you are as well. I'm also super grateful for all of that feedback and support that I got uh, from the Patreon community. And if you love what we're doing here, if the show makes you laugh, think, feel less alone, I hope you'll consider joining our Patreon community too. This is a 100% listener-supported show, which you probably know by now. No ads, no sponsors. These conversations, they're financially supported by awesome regular people like you, starting now at just $1 per episode. So you can learn more about that, about all the fun bonuses that you get as a community member over at patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. That financial support, it's what allows me to keep making new episodes. It pays everyone involved in creating the show, which includes me, of course, as well as my sound engineer, Adam Day, and also every single one of our guests. It's been my dream for years to be able to pay all the guests. And now that our community has met the funding goal that makes that possible, it means that all the guests whose stories you love are indeed getting paid for the time they spend with us. And higher rates are always paid to our guests of color, as well as our queer and trans guests and others with traditionally marginalized identities. So one more time, that's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. I'd love to have you in our fun community. And now let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to meet Mary Laura Philpot. Mary Laura is an essayist whose writing appears in publications including the New York Times, the Paris Review, the Washington Post, and others. Her debut memoir, which I absolutely loved, is called I Miss You When I Blink, and it was named to the number one spot on the Indie Next list by booksellers nationwide and featured on must-read lists from Esquire to Newsweek to BuzzFeed and beyond. 
Mary Laura is also the founding editor of Musing, the online magazine of Parnassus Books, as well as an Emmy-winning co-host of the literary interview show A Word on Words on Nashville Public Television. In this episode, we explore questions of perfectionism, reinvention, loneliness, guilt, and how it's never too late to change your life. Mary Laura shares honest stories of her own shifts and growth throughout the years, a lot of which is what she writes about in the book. And these stories, they really prove that change is possible on a slower, smaller scale, and that we don't need to necessarily burn our lives down in order to find what we are seeking. Um, Yeah, I loved this book so much, and this conversation was a joy to have, and I hope that you enjoy it just as much. So all of that starts in just a moment. And as always, you'll be able to find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at NicoleAntoinette.com slash podcast. All right, we're good to go. Mary Laura, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So how about we do three fun and totally random questions to kick things off? I love it. Random is fun. Okay. What's one thing that in your 20s you thought you had to do, but looking back, you wish you wouldn't have done it? Oh, my gosh. The tough part is narrowing down to one. (laughs) when, When I have talked to friends of mine from college, several of us have actually agreed on this one. We all thought we had to go straight from graduation into our full time permanent life plan job. Like we all thought that those interviews we were doing senior year were the interviews that were going to determine the shape of our whole professional future. And we were in like a big hurry to get that job and make sure that the start date was right after graduation. And I, I don't know how I would have afforded it, but I do wish I had taken some time before I had jumped right into that. Yeah. Even you describing that, that sounds like a lot of pressure. Yeah. Like, why did we think that? I don't know. I mean, I, I knew a lot of people who went to um, graduate school straight out of college. And so that in that way, they had a path set out for them, like people who went to medical school or law school or whatever. Um, and I guess it was those of us who didn't have that path in front of us that maybe felt like we had to compensate by going, oh, but I have a path. I've done an interview and I got a job offer and I'm going to start on June 1st. And here we go. I don't know why I thought that at that age. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it makes a lot of sense, right? Especially as someone I know I identify like you do as who was really good at school and got good grades and really liked the structure of that or thrived in the structure of that. And if that's kind of what you've known your whole life and then that's just over, that can be really daunting. Yeah, yeah. That's I, I wish I could go back and kind of whisper in the ear of my 21-year-old self and just say, calm down. <laughs> you have lots of time. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot about sort of the pressure that I have put on myself with dif- different decisions in my life. And I feel like I still need this reminder. But the thing that always comes up when I'm looking back is I wish that I could have really understood that very few choices are irreversible or like th- this idea that like you can always make a different choice almost. Yes. Like, I mean, other than ch- like childbirth and amputation, there's just not much that is permanent. Like there's, there's not, there's, there are almost no decisions that you can't walk back and go a different way or not necessarily walk back. I mean, you can only go forward, but that you can't say, okay, I did that, did that for a while. Now I'm going to do something else. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I know that's probably a lot of what we're going to be talking about, but yeah, that totally resonates. I would tell my 21 year old self the same thing probably. Okay. So next question, drop me into your real life. Tell me how you spent the first, let's say hour or two of your day today. 
Oh, wow. Okay. So my real life right now, it is summertime. Um, by the time people are hearing this, it's probably still summertime, which means, um, a much more relaxed schedule in my life. I have two children who are teenagers. And so during the school year, my day begins very early because I have to get up before they do in order to wake them up. And then we have to get everyone fed and out the door into school. And my work, my work life doesn't begin until I get everyone else out of the house. But during the summer, which I love, everyone sleeps late. So I get up at a more humane hour, like seven or seven thirty, and I greet my dogs and I go sit out on what I call my outside office, which is really just the porch behind my house. And I work out there and I try to start my day with writing something, whatever I'm working on. And, and right now that's a little bit shapeless because I don't know where I'm going next with my, my writing life. But I try to spend 30 minutes or an hour just writing something before I get into checking email and, you know, all that administrative stuff that tends to suck up time during the day. So I, I love mornings in the summer. It's a, it's a peaceful time and it feels like a productive time. Okay, I have more specific questions on that because I'm always so interested in like the details of people's routines. So when you said that you like to start it by writing something, is that just like a open a journal, whatever you f- comes out, comes out? Is it a, you know, prompts? Is it a sit down at the, la- like bring the laptop out there? Like, what does that look like for you? It's it's more structured than a journal. And it is always on my laptop because I'm just not a, I'm not a handwritten writing person. I never have been. Once I learned to type, I never went back. But um, I try to keep a couple of different projects open and going at all times. So generally, I have two or three essays started and in various stages of doneness. So depending on kind of where my mind is on a given morning, I can open up one of those and start tinkering with it. Or if I've had an idea, you know, the night before or as I wake up, I'll start something new. The essay format which of course is the format of, of I Miss You When I Blink. It's a memoir that is in essays. Something about the essay format just speaks to my brain. That's how I, it's the perfect format for wrestling with a question or wrestling with an issue or even telling a story. It's just the right length for my brain. So when I sit down to write, I am typically crafting something in essay form that either will turn into an actual published essay one day or will become kind of a, a little, what I call a parking lot essay, which is it's an essay just holding some ideas that I'm going to use for something that I don't know what it is later. Interesting. That phrase parking lot essay is totally brilliant. I've already written that down. So we're like a couple minutes into this and I'm like, thank you for that helpful tip. <laughs> wonderful. It's interesting to hear you say that you usually have multiple writing projects going at the same time. It's similar for me. I'm usually reading multiple books of different kinds at the same time because, I mean, for lots of reasons. But, for example, I love fiction and find that I can't read it before bed because I will not go to bed. (laughs) I will keep turning the pages over and over. And so I have to have something that is, like, sort of not boring necessarily but more dry and that I don't mind, like, stopping in the middle of a chapter to read. And I guess it makes sense that, you know, a creative output project would work similarly that if you only have one thing to work on, what if that's not the thing you want to work on? Right, right. And I'm, by the way, I'm very similar to you reading wise. I usually have something fiction and something nonfiction because I feel like just just like you, when I'm reading fiction, I don't want to put it down. So it's not a good right before I go to sleep thing. But with, I feel like nonfiction has so many more natural stopping points, you know, the way that it's, and I mean, that, that could be anything that could be memoir or that could be like some sort of interesting, factual, historical nonfiction. I feel like you can read to the end of a chapter and go, OK, that's a closing point and shut the book for the night. 
Yeah, that's definitely how I feel. Okay, so now I have to ask you on the heels of that. This summer, or I guess this year, what do you feel like are the one or two books that you either can't stop thinking about or can't stop recommending? Oh my gosh. So I will give the caveat that that's a hard one for me to answer because I do, I have a part-time job as a bookseller. So I read, I'm constantly reading and recommending books. But the, the one that I was just like right before I got on the phone with you talking with someone about that I'm kind of obsessed with is called The Need by Helen Phillips. Have you heard about this book? I have not. Okay. So Helen Phillips writes, I think you would call it speculative fiction. So sort of like Margaret Atwood in that it's not, it's not sci-fi. It's just surreal. Like sci-fi is the wrong word for it, but I don't know what the right word is. It's surreal fiction. Um, and this is her latest novel. It just came out. And what I want everyone to do with this novel is just go pick it up without knowing anything about it and go in with zero expectations. The reviews have started to come out for this book and they're all glowing, but they also give a lot of spoilers. And I feel like if you go into it kind of knowing what you're going to get, it, it messes with the experience of it. I read it early as a galley or an advanced copy, which means it had no blurbs. It had no reviews. I, I just thought it was a pretty cover and I had met Helen and I was like, Oh, surreal fiction. I'm into it. And what I knew from the beginning was that I opened up the first page, the scene that I was reading, the scene you get when you open this novel is a woman with her two young children, like a baby and a toddler in their home. And they're hiding in the woman's bedroom because she thinks she has heard an intruder in her house. And all I want anybody to know is that's not exactly what's going on. Ooh, and from okay. There, from there, the book, the book takes a turn. It's not really a thriller. It's a mind bending, bizarre way of articulating what parenthood feels like. It's just amazing. It's okay. So, it's so weird. And I use weird as a compliment. So that's, that's the highest praise I can give it. It's yeah. I love that. I also really resonate with what you said about sort of going in with no expectations to something as someone who really enjoys the process of research and logistics, whether that's like in planning a trip or, you know, get like a book or a, should I go see this movie, right? I do like the research or looking at Yelp reviews for a restaurant or something. And it's like trying to find the balance between when that's helpful and when it's not, because it's really delightful to be surprised, I think. And I think it's harder to be surprised these days. Yes. But like, being surprised and delighted is the best combination of emotions when you're experiencing anything. I actually, I have a little, um, a newsletter that I send out, like it's supposed to be weekly, but it's not always weekly. And at the beginning, I always recommend one book to read. And the need was the book that I recommended in my newsletter last week. And I had the hardest time describing it without giving anything away because I didn't want to take away the surprise for people. And sometimes I get so mad when I read book reviews, even when they're really positive book reviews that just summarize the entire book. Cause mm -hmm. I think we'll know everything that's going to happen. Yeah. Um, I also just made a note for myself to sign up for your newsletter. Cause that's definitely something that I would like to be a part of. Um, yeah. The last thing that I'll say about this, I think a lot of, and this is definitely something that's come up on the show before sort of the space that exists between expectation and reality and how sometimes the, 
like disappointment that we can feel or kind of like unsettled, I don't know, like dismay at something happens when the fantasy of the thing is very different than the reality of the thing. And I think this plays out more in real life circumstances necessarily than like a book or a piece of media. But I was I was thinking I went on a, a quite a difficult for where my fitness is at right now hike this past weekend. And I had been told that it was sort of no big deal. And I found that that was in fact not the case and that it was like incredibly hard. And I was so miserable and it was really humid and I was sweating and it was buggy and it was like this never ending climbing up this like rocky, rooty situation. And when I got to the top of the mountain before I then had to turn around and come back down, I was thinking, would this have been miserable if I expected it to be miserable, right? Like so much of it was like being caught off guard of like, oh God, I thought this was going to be fine and this is terrible. (laughs) Right. Yeah. On the flip side, like being surprised and delighted is great. Being surprised and disappointed is rough. (laughs) Totally. Yeah. (laughs) So then it's like, how much research do you do for something, right? So for you with your life in general, like when you're making a decision, whether it's a big thing, a small thing, do you tend to be a let's pull out the spreadsheet like and research a lot of stuff or do you tend to be more spontaneous or does it depend on the area of your life? It probably depends on the area of my life, but I am a researcher. I'm a planner to a fault. I I like to know, you know, when I'm planning a trip, the first thing I do is map out where I'm going to eat. Like what are all my dinners? What are all my breakfasts? What are all my lunches? And then I fill in everything else around that. So I do a lot of reading of menus and reviews and all of that, which maybe that says less about my planning nature and more just about how much I like to eat. <laughs> okay, well, you and I could plan a trip. That sounds great. Because um, I am the same way. I'm going to UK to the UK for six weeks um, later this summer. And I'm like, okay, how many afternoon teas can I get? How many scones is too many scones? Like, And the answer is none, of course. But yeah. there's no such thing as too many scones. Oh, my God going to be so much fun. Yeah, I'm excited. Um, one of those things that my past self committed to that my current self is like, I don't know that I really have time for this, but I'm going to go anyway. So love it. I love it. The last of the three random questions that I want to ask you, although now this has opened up like many other things that I want to talk about. Um, my favorite question to ask people, what are you totally obsessed with right now? Um, other than that book that I just talked about, which I am completely obsessed with, and I want everyone to read so that I have someone to talk talk about it with. Um, what am I obsessed with? I'm, you know what I'm obsessed with right now? I've done more travel this year than I have done in any year of my life, just because book tour happened. And I've never before had to pack so many days of outfits that need to look good into one carry on bag. And I never used to be somebody who would scroll through Instagram and look at people's posts where they're like, here's the inside of my suitcase, getting ready to leave. And now I'm obsessed with it. Like I will pause on travel bloggers when they're like headed to Barcelona. I like pause and expand the picture and I look at, okay, how did they do their shoes and where did they put their coat? That's my weird obsession right now is packing. No, that does. That sounds incredibly interesting. I'm thinking about this six week trip that I'm going on. And I'm also hoping to just bring a carry on. And I've been thinking, first of all, like, what is a capsule wardrobe look like for that amount of time of things that like, aren't going to get super wrinkled, and I'm going to be on the go a lot, right? Like, what does that look like? And then, yeah, how to pack it. My my mother was a flight attendant for 18 years back for TWA and is like, the best at packing things. And I feel like some of that should have rubbed off on me and like, didn't really, I don't know. (laughs) I'm, I've become a big fan of clothes you can wash in a hotel sink. Oh, because yeah. If, if you can wash something and hang it up and it dries nicely, then that's multiple outfits, not just one outfit. Yeah, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. Is there like a brand that fits that description that you've fallen in love with? Basically, like help me shop for my trip is what I'm saying. <laughs> yes. Okay. So I'm on the hunt for like 
inexpensive brands that do this. But a brand that I love, and it is a little pricey, but I feel like it's worth it, especially for like professional wardrobe. Like if you have to get, like, I don't always have to go places in a dress, but sometimes I do. And if I need to wear a dress multiple times on one trip, I like to know that I can wash it and hang it up and not have to iron it. And there's a company, um, called M.M. Lafleur, and they were created a few years ago as a to be a work capsule wardrobe for professional women. And you you do have to look when you're shopping online and make sure that you're you're choosing the dresses that are washable, not the ones that are dry clean only. I hate dry cleaning. Like if a piece of clothing is dry clean only, what that says to me is I can wear it four times until it smells bad, and then I'm literally never going to wear it <laughs> because I'll take it to my dry cleaner and forget to get it. But M.M. Lafleur has some dresses and some other things that are washable and that travel really well. There's, there's some fabric and you can probably tell when you're looking at the pictures online because it's, it's this fabric that looks really smooth and I don't know what it is made of. It's gotta be something man-made, but I have a few dresses that are made out of this stuff and you can put your dress in the sink, wash it with some detergent, like press it in a towel and hang it up. And when it dries, it looks perfect. So I have a few of those that have been good investment pieces. I love that. I also love what you're saying about not being someone who's going to get stuff dry cleaned. I think that going back to the, you know, one, what's one thing in your 20s, right, that if you could go back, you would tell yourself to do differently. It would definitely be for me, like, girl, you're not going to hand wash stuff. You're not going to dry clean. So like, you're just not going to do that. Like, know who you are, <laughs> buy the correct clothing, because that is definitely me. Yeah, I have started unless it is something that I just absolutely adore, or if it's for like a big time occasion where I'm not going to need to rewear it frequently. I check labels all the time now and I do not buy dry clean only clothing. Yeah, it's 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 funny. It sounds like such a small thing, but I think it's like under the umbrella of like accepting what's true about yourself, right? Like I'm just not someone who's going to do that and yes, change is possible and like we can grow and but I don't care to change it. I don't care. <laughs> I don't want anything that adds more errands to my life. God, preach. Yes, that's very real. <laughs> so you mentioned traveling uh, more than usual this year because of book tour. So yeah. let's pivot a little bit and talk about the book. The first thing I would love to ask you is for you to share the story behind the book title. Sure. Okay. So the book is called I Miss You When I Blink. It's a memoir written in essays. And so the very first chapter or essay in the book kind of explains where the title came from. And, um, I, I say all the time that, you know, authors always say, Oh, I can't brag about my own book. I can brag about my own title because I didn't come up with it myself. It was coined by one of my kids and my kids are big now, but when he was little, my son was just scribbling on a little piece of paper sitting on the floor of my office. I was working, I was a freelance writer at the time. So I think I was writing like a website or a brochure for some company, probably about like luggage or something. And he was on the floor next to me scribbling on a little notepad. I think he was about six. And I heard him kind of talking to himself and reading what he was writing out loud. And he was going, I miss you in the sink. And I miss you in the rink. And I miss you when I blink. And as soon as he said it, it just stuck in my head. You know how like sometimes you'll hear a song and you'll hear a certain song lyric and you're like, that's going to be stuck in my head forever. That is what happened with this phrase. And I, when we left my office that day and went to go play in the park, I took his little piece of paper and I stuck it up on the wall on my bulletin board, which meant that every day from then on, whenever I would walk down into my little basement office, I would walk past this piece of paper that said, I miss you when I blink. And I still have it. Um, and it took on all this additional meaning. So when he first said it, I was just like, well, that's adorable. And also maybe genius. I have made a genius child. This is so great. I love this phrase. 
And then as I got older and as my life became more complicated, as all of our lives do, that phrase in my head, it was almost like a tumbleweed or a little lint ball. Like it just started, all this other meaning started sticking to it. I'm kind of obsessed with time and how time speeds up as we age and how it feels like it's going faster and faster and faster. And the when I blink part sort of came to represent that. And the I miss you part, and this is a lot of what the book is about, and this is why this became the title of the book. The I miss you part came to represent for me things I missed about myself and who I had been at earlier phases in my life and had kind of wandered away from and also who I intended to be, but hadn't become yet. So, you know, he probably meant it as this happy little cute rhymey thing, but it became this really poignant sort of heavy phrase for me. And a lot of the stuff that I write about in the book is grappling with time and reinvention and who we are and who we're meant to be. So there you go. He got to name the book. He didn't even know he was doing it when he was six, but he did. Yeah, it's it's such a good title. It's such a good book. I was telling you this before we started recording that um, it was one of the books that I read when I was out on my 700-mile backpacking trip this year, and I would read it in my tent at night, and it was just – I love, like, memoirs in essay format. That's always been one of my favorite. I don't know if that in itself is a genre, but if so, I, I love that genre. And I just remember reading it, and like I feel like I underlined, like, the half the book. It became, like, almost, like, not – worth because I'm like you when usually you underline one or two things and they're really meaningful I'm like but I love all of this I'm just underlining <laughs> all of it <laughs> like it just... that makes me so happy that makes me so happy I mean partially just because I'm so happy that you connected with it but also because I fully relate to that experience I have books where I've like I folded down so many pages that eventually I just quit folding down the pages because I realized I'm folding down every single page. Yeah. Well, and especially when like as on hikes, I read things using the Kindle app on my phone. So it's like this tiny screen where all I'm doing is like running my finger over the entire screen to highlight like the whole page. And I'm like, is this even should I just like, <laughs> God, <laughs> the last book that I did that with. Have you read um, The Art of Doing Nothing by Jenny O'Dell? I have. Yes. OK. Did you did you like it? Yeah, was it's is that what it's, it's called? How to do nothing, I think. That's what I meant. How to do nothing. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. I loved blend. it. It was one of those books that what I thought it was going to be like was very different from what it actually was. Like what it actually wound up going into. But yeah, I really enjoyed it. I read it this year. Yeah, I, well, I had the same experience in that I thought it was going to be a little lighter than it was, and same. it was a very scholarly book. But that was a book where I was folding down page after page after page after page, and then I looked down and I folded pretty much the whole book. Yeah. And then you're like, what was I even going to go back no, to here? All in I this? did was make my book really puffy. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's funny. So there's so much in like even that story about the title that you shared that I would love to dig into. But one thing that I was thinking about just sort of in how you were talking about this idea of like grappling with I don't know, like our identity, right? Like who we thought we were going to be, like who maybe we haven't become yet, right? And like time and all of that. And uh, maybe this is a strange place to go with this, but I'm interested in like what your experience has been of maintaining or grappling with your identity outside of like a partner and kids? Yeah, well, this is a conversation I've had with so many friends over, I mean, really over the past like seven years. So I'm in my early 40s. So starting mid 30s, I feel like friends of mine and I started having this conversation about how as you you know, as you grow up as an adult, and I do feel like we are all continually growing up, that as you grow up as an adult, your your different identities stack up. So, you know, you get into adulthood and you're just you. And then, then you're you 
the person, but also you, the, whatever your career is, you're, you, the doctor, or you're, you, the, whatever, you know, tree specialist, that's a piece of your identity. And then as you change careers, you add other levels of your identity. So then you're the former tree specialist, now veterinarian or whatever. Um, and then in addition to your professional layers of identity, you have different personal layers of identity. Like you said, you are at different points in your life, maybe a partner or a parent. And by the time you get a decade or a decade and a half into adulthood, that's, it's a lot that you're carrying around all those identities. And it's, what it means is that you're constantly, or I shouldn't say you, I, and some of my friends feel like you're constantly having to live up to so much. Like if you're, and I won't even say a perfectionist, even if you're just someone who generally likes to do things right. If you are that kind of a person and you have all these identities, you are constantly thinking, am I being a good partner? Am I being a good, whatever it is I do for a living? Am I being a good parent? Am I being a good friend? Which means you wake up every day just under this sort of crushing weight of expectation and, and trying to be good at all of these things. So I've wandered off of your question completely, by the way. Um, but that's a lot of what the book is about, is about getting that far into adulthood and going, wait a minute, where am I in all of this? You know, mm-hmm. here's this identity, here's that identity, but where's the person I started out as? Where is she down in there somewhere? Do you feel like you have a clear grasp on who she is? I feel like, yeah, I feel like I do. And a lot of this this book, the process of writing this book was sort of peeling back all those layers to get back to who she is. Um, so, you know, just on a personal level, writing the book was helpful to me in that way. But I think it it can be helpful to read as someone else because it does walk you through that process of going, wait a minute, if I got all the way here in life, surely I can get to whatever my next thing is. So let me look back and see where I've been and why did I do all these things and why are the choices that I made you know, maybe the right choices in the time I made them, but no longer the right choices for me now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Something that I think about a lot is this idea of like letting go of thinking that I'm going to arrive at any kind of like fixed place when it comes to either identity or these kind of choices, right? Like that it's, there's always, not always, but I have found in my life that there just continues to be different chapters of things, right? And like what was once really important to me might not be important to me right now. And can I let that be okay? Yeah. It's so hard. I mean, if you think about the fact that we spend the first two decades of our lives with actual finish lines and goalposts in front of us, like every single year you finish a grade of school and it's like, great, you finish third grade, check mark. Now you start fourth grade. So it's understandably very difficult to let go of that mindset when you get to adulthood that you're not working towards some sort of finish line or some sort of moment where you're done in some way. It's, it's hard to let go of that. And if, and again, like if you are, if you have a drop of perfectionism or you are, if you have anything in your personality that makes you the kind of person where you associate your self-worth with your productivity in some way, you want to look at your life and go, aha, look, I have made it. I have checked off these boxes and arrived at fill in the blank, whatever you think you're supposed to have arrived at. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, one of the 
themes, I feel like from the essays that really resonated with me is what you're talking about right now, this like struggle to not base our worthiness off of our achievements and accomplishments, which I mean, I think is like a near universal thing. Maybe there's someone out there that doesn't struggle with it. If so, please email me, like tell me all your secrets. Like That sounds great. But I'd, I'd be interested in going into more detail about that. Like maybe you can talk about sort of the role that that struggle not necessarily has played in your life, but maybe where you're at with it right now. Yeah. So a a question that I get a lot when I go and do readings is people say, so, you know, you wrote this book about how you were learning about yourself, that you are someone who gets a lot of your self-worth out of your work. And now you're more cognizant of it. You know, how are you now? Like, how did you fix it? (laughs) People always want to know, like, how, how did you become not that way? And I say, this is not that kind of book and not that kind of journey. I don't get to the end and go, aha, now I know how to not be someone who gets my self-worth out of my work. I am deep down on like a bone deep level, a person who needs to feel some kind of productivity to feel good. It is just who I am, but I am a lot more aware of it now than I was at say 30. So now I can identify when I get this really unsettled feeling and this feeling like, Oh, I'm, I don't feel good. Why don't I feel good? Oh, I don't feel good because I've had five days in a row where I haven't done anything or produced anything or, or achieved that feeling of having, made something and that's not comfortable for me. So I can at least see that now and I can identify the source of that discomfort and either, you know, sit with it and live with it and go, and there it is, that discomfort is just going to be, or I can do something about it and say, all right, I'm going to make something today. And that is going to make me feel better. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, I love the nuance of this that you're talking about, because I think it's really easy on one hand to say like, you know, yeah, we need to be productive in order to feel good. Or on the other hand, like we should never get any kind of worthiness off of our accomplishments. And I, I think either of those extremes is probably not that helpful, right? But like the middle ground, I think is a lot more messy, right? It's I don't know, it's like, how do we and I'm not actually asking this to you, I feel like this is like the rhetorical question of like, how do you find like, sort of what the balance of that is for you, yeah. right? Like I've tried to pick apart, you know, with my productivity anxiety, how much of this is like, capitalist bullshit train it right like how much is that versus like how much is like socialized to like be a good girl how much like and I'm sure all of it is lots of threads together right and it's like too many to ever pick through I think (laughs) and I don't know but there's like something in that that I'm I just like appreciate your honesty of like yeah this is something that I struggle with and I continue to struggle with it yeah yeah well I mean one of the things that has been helpful to me in addition to just being able to recognize it and go oh that is that's that pattern I keep playing out in my life again and again is to release myself from the pressure to fix it Mm. or, or to say, Oh no, I'm a perfectionist. That's terrible. How can I be not that way? I'm trying to be a little more Zen about it and go, okay, I'm a perfectionist. This is who I am. These are the patterns I tend to fall into. And I can actually kind of game the system a little bit, a little bit and go, okay, I am the kind of person who needs to feel like I have done things right. That is important to me. This causes me to have a difficulty resting and relaxing because I'm constantly looking for things to do and to do right. So I'm going to challenge myself to do resting and relaxing right. Mm -hmm. Like if I can go on a walk and then come home and read a book and play with my dog, that is A plus work at relaxing, (laughs) which is a silly way to look at it, but it takes kind of the value system that I have in my brain that if I've done a task well, then I can feel good about it. And I make the task relaxing or I make the task 
you know, meditating or whatever. If I can play to the system that is set up in my mind, that tends to help. No, I don't think it's silly at all. I think it's really refreshing. I mean, it's similar to what we were talking about, about the like dry clean only clothes, right? Where I think someone could say, oh, just, you know, you need to get over it and like accept that adults dry clean their clothes or whatever. And that's not necessarily the answer, right? It's this idea that like there's more than one way to get from point A to point B. And I think one of the things that um, I think about a lot in just like my personal life inner landscape is the value of like acknowledging what's true for me, just like let what's true be true, right? And like try to have some emotional neutrality around whatever's true. Just because right. it's true doesn't mean I have to fix it. It doesn't mean that I have to act on it. It doesn't mean that I ever have to tell anyone else that I think it's true. Right? Like the value in terms of like self-trust for me of being like, this is what's true for me, right? And then deciding what it is that I want to do with that because I think sort of the self-help culture, it's like really exhausting to feel like every aspect of your life is a problem to be fixed. Yeah, yeah. And there are like plenty of things that can be true about you that are maybe not your favorite things, but that you can ask yourself instead of how do I fix this and how do I make myself perfect? How do I live with this? How do I work with this? Because if you, you know, if you look at every single thing about yourself that's not perfect as something that you have to fix, you can never rest. It's just exhausting, which, you know, is what a lot of this book is about. It's just that feeling of I'm exhausted because I have to fix everything and I need to get myself perfect. And no, we don't. We can. There are a lot of things you can live with. And also, if you're if you let yourself live with and work with and kind of be friendly with some of your imperfections, it frees you up to work on the ones that maybe you really do need to fix because they're harmful Mm -hmm. or, you know. There are habits that if you change them, you would feel much greater mental and emotional peace. So if you can let go of the stuff that doesn't really matter, you know, and it's not stuff that you have to fix, then you can focus on the things you want to focus on. Yeah, I think so, too. I think like even within one topic, right, if we're talking about the like, you know, worthiness or, you know, feeling good, being tied into achieving things or accomplishing things. I think even within that, there's multiple threads. There's, you know, what you said of kind of gaming the system. This is how my brain is. I'm going to turn things, you know, into games that work for me. And then for me, it's been sort of, I guess, like a combination of that. And then also acknowledging, like you said, the parts that are worth looking at and healing of I, you know, took me a while to get to the place of, okay, like I'm worthy of good things, of joy, of love, like even if I'm not producing anything, right? It's like being able to like separate those things has been helpful, but then acknowledging that, you know, yeah, I do still like to check things off the list. Yeah. And that's like knowing, accepting kind of that duality, like I'm a person who likes to check things off a list. And also that's not necessarily a healthy way to live all the time is important because it, it means that you're giving yourself for this particular thing. It means you're giving yourself permission to exist without proving your need to exist or without proving your right to exist. You're giving yourself permission to be somebody who's not productive every single day and isn't fixing every problem in the whole wide world. And you're still allowed to live. Yeah. So you mentioned that one of the things that's shifted for you over maybe the last 10 years is sort of being awake and an awareness to your patterns, maybe this pattern, you know, particularly when it comes to perfectionist personality tendencies. Do you feel like there's anything that you can name that helped you get to that place of being able to like be more awake to it? Like what sort of what did that look like for you? Honestly, writing this book. So to back us up to sort of how this book started, I started writing this collection of essays 
without knowing what it was going to be. In fact, I tried to do what a lot of nonfiction writers do, which is sell a book based on a proposal. I've had over the years, lots of different editors come to me and go, you know, they'll read like one piece that I published somewhere and go, Ooh, have you ever thought about doing a collection? Let me know if you do. And so I would try to write multiple times. I've tried to write a proposal for a book of essays without actually having written the book of essays. And what I've learned about myself is I don't know what I'm writing until I have written it. Um, so those proposals were always terrible because I would be like, I'm going to write a book of essays about, um, and I just couldn't figure out what, you know, what were they going to cohere into? So once I, I freed myself from the trying to propose something that I hadn't written yet, I kind of went off and said, all right, let me just write and write and write and write a whole bunch of essays. Then look at what I've got. And if it coheres into something and I can write a proposal for that, great. So I went off and I wrote and wrote and wrote. And what I saw happening was that I was returning to questions of reinvention and identity and perfectionism again and again through different stories. So by the time I had written this whole pile of essays, I could look at it and go, oh, I've written a memoir and essays about reinvention. <laughs> there it is. But it was really the writing of the book that made me see those patterns in my life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so interesting of like writing your way into what's true for you. Yeah. I mean, I wish I could be one of those people who could go, I think what I'm going to do is write a whole collection. And these are the themes that will emerge. I just don't know what themes emerge until I've written them. And then I go, oh, look, themes. Yeah, I mean, that's it's so similar to the podcast process of, you know, maybe I know the couple of things that I find really interesting about someone's story or their work. And I'm like, I want to have a conversation with them about X, right, or X and Y. And yeah, we probably talk about those things. But it isn't until I'm done that I'm like, oh, okay, like, this was the title here. Or this is, you know, the themes yeah. that kind of keep coming up. And yeah, I think, I mean, a lot of what you're speaking to is around this idea of like things sort of like allowing things to be maybe messier than we would have wanted. It's really easy to get caught into the like, here's the capital R right way to do this, right? first you write the proposal, then you do. And it's like, okay, maybe that works for some people, but it doesn't work for everyone. And this idea, like I said before, that there's more than one way to get from point A to point B. And like, can you let it be okay to do it your way, even if your way looks different from, you know, someone else? Yeah. I'm so glad that you brought up the process of how the book came to be in general, because one of the things that I wanted to ask you about, since so much of what you're grappling with in the book is perfectionism, I'm interested in, maybe it's a little meta, but I'm interested in how perfectionism shows up and how it manifests for you in the writing process. Like, I assume that you had lots of moments throughout this project where you thought, you know, I can't do this or it's too hard or it's not coming together or, you know, something yeah. in that vein. Or maybe even if you're someone like me, the fear voice that pops up of this work doesn't really matter. Who am I to do this thing? Right. And I, I don't know. I know that that's kind of a big, heavy question, but I'm interested in sort of the specifics maybe of what you experienced while creating this book. Yeah. Well, it, I mean, it is a meta question, but it's a good, it's a, it's an apt question. So, you know, in the book, I write about how perfectionism held me hostage a little bit and it would hold me in scenarios or hold me to decisions long after the decisions weren't right for me anymore. Like I found myself living in Atlanta with my husband and two children and my freelance writing job, which all of which was as I designed it, like this is where we're going to live and this is the job I'm going to do. And we're going to be in this part of the city so that my kids can go to this school and I have access to downtown. And, and at the time I chose all that stuff, it was great and it was right. And over several years it became not 
the right scenario for us anymore or for me anymore um, for a number of reasons. One of which is just that Atlanta grew to the point where you, you can't go anywhere without sitting in traffic. And I felt like I was living my entire life in my car and it was making me insane. And I was lonely in a lot of professional and creative ways because I didn't have a community around me of other creative people. So the book in, in many ways is literally about how perfectionism and feeling like I have to make things work holds me in scenarios that don't work anymore. When you look at writing, especially when you look at writing a project of this size, if you have those tendencies, those perfectionist tendencies, they can slow you down, or at least they can slow me down because I don't want anyone to read something that I've written until it's perfect. And as anybody who does any kind of creative work can tell you, there is no point at which a creative project is perfect. You get it as great as you can and you polish it and you edit it and you do everything you can to it, but it's never, it's a living thing. It's never going to be perfect. So, you know, that process that I told you about earlier where I was working on a proposal and it was terrible because I couldn't summarize what I hadn't written yet. That was a deeply frustrating experience for me. And it kind of set me back a little because I thought, gosh, I thought I was a writer, but if this is how writers do things and I can't do it, then, you know, I guess I have failed. Once I let go of that, started writing the essays, I really, really tried to hold on to the idea that that nothing I was writing had to be perfect yet. I kind of kept this like fuzzy finish line off in the distance. Like it'll get perfect when I get there, but I'm not there yet. So just keep writing, keep writing. Just keep your head down, keep writing. People say that all the time and it really is good advice because if you can think of what you're working on as being in progress, and not finished, you can, you can let go of the need to make it perfect. So as long as I kept thinking to myself, I'm just in progress, it's good, I was fine. It was when I had to go, now it's time for other people to read it. Like now it's time to send it to my agent or to send it out to editors. That's when I would start to panic and go, oh, but it's not perfect yet. So, okay, so the first time that someone else read it or you sent it out, what was that experience like for you? Well, the lucky thing for me with this book is that, um, a few pieces of it, not, not most of it, this is a minority of the book, but some of the, the essays in this book were previously published. So I had published with, um, there are two different sections of the New York times that I've written for pretty frequently and some other publications. So thankfully I had had some kind of bite size experiences with letting pieces of this work be read by somebody else, like another editor, and then actually read widely by readers which is wonderful. Like that had given me practice to go, okay, I know when a piece is pretty much done and I can let go of it and send it to somebody and then other people read it. But the first time I said a whole draft of a book, um, was to my agent and it was a pretty, it wasn't a done draft and I knew it wasn't a done draft. I knew it still needed a lot of work, but I do trust my agent. She, um, her name is Kristen Benton. She works with ICM and she's a pretty good editor as well as an agent. So I trust her eye. I trust her ear. Um, and because she is someone I had worked with before she worked with me on my first book, which was a totally different thing. It was a book of cartoons, but because she was someone I already knew and trusted, she wasn't someone I was, um, I didn't have to go get an agent for this book. So I wasn't trying to impress her. I was just really wanted her honest feedback. That was a comfortable process for me too. So I, I really was lucky in that I was able to do kind of the exposure part of letting other people read this book piece by piece. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, and 
as someone who identifies with a lot of the same, I don't know, personality, like tendencies, right, that you have spoke about in the book and that you've talked about in this conversation, I feel like one of the things that I have had to learn and I'm still like constantly learning is if I want the work, whatever the work is, to be mm-hmm. as good as possible, not, I mean, mm-hmm. perfect is not a thing, right? So if I, but if I want it to improve and if I want to grow, then like, opening up to other people, the reaction that I'm looking for shouldn't be, oh my God, this is amazing. Even though that's like what my ego wants it to be, right? (laughs) Like being able to be like, no, like I, especially when you're talking about like an agent or an editor, when you're at that phase of the process, like sure, it's great when like someone picks it up off the bookshelf, right? And I'm sure it comes to a reading and says, oh my God, this was perfect. But that like, there is something in that if if I want it to be as good as it can be, then I have to be willing to like hear things that maybe I don't want to hear. And I think that's true, not just for creative work, but like as a person in relationships, like as a person in the world, being able to be like, hey, this thing that you did was hurtful or problematic or, you know, something like that. Yeah, nothing gets better unless you can identify the mistakes in it or the weak points in it. Ugh, and isn't that the worst, right? Like, why? <laughs> I know. No, but I, I agree. Yeah, my ego is like, would it be great if the first draft just was the final draft and it just like came out perfectly? That is not how it goes. I love being edited by a good editor. Being edited by a good editor is the best feeling in the world. Like someone who can see your vision for where you're going and help you get there. Mm. That feels Yeah, 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 yeah. I love that. So you mentioned before that, you know, sort of the process of what is this book actually about? You know, mm-hmm. the, the thing that kept coming up was reinvention. And I'm I'm really interested in talking about this because I think – one of the things that I loved the most about this book, I mean, at this point, I feel like this entire episode is like me fangirling about this book. I really enjoyed it that much. Um, <laughs> but this idea, I feel like I'm hungry for stories of regular people changing their lives, right? And I mean, obviously, everyone's a real regular person, right, at the heart of it. Right. But I really liked this idea of I want to change my life, but I don't necessarily want to burn it all down. So like, what does incremental change look like? Like, I think it's really easy because of a lot of the stories that get popularized to think like, okay, if I want to make a change, like I have to change everything, right? Like I have to quit my job and leave this relationship and move and do this huge thing. And sometimes that's definitely the right thing to do. I've done literally all of those things, right? So it's not like there's anything inherently wrong with that. But I think being able to pull back into the messier place of like, I want something to change, but like, can I accept that like a 5% pivot might be enough, right? I think it's easy to think, oh my God, I have to burn it all down in order to feel better. And I, f- I don't know, there's like a lot in what you talk about in this book that sort of pushes against that. Yeah, I'm a huge fan. As a reader, I'm a huge fan of memoirs of ordinary lives. I'm also a huge fan of memoirs of extraordinary lives. Like I love a good memoir about like someone who was kidnapped and made her way out of the basement lair and escaped. Like, that's fascinating to me. And I love a good memoir about somebody who, um, like you said, burned her life to the ground and changed her name. And, you know, I love stories like that. I love the really drastic reinvention stories. I think they're fascinating and they're inspiring. And there was a time in my life, which is, I write about a lot, and I miss you when I blink this particular time, where I felt really lost. And like, I didn't know how, to get out of the place where I didn't feel right anymore to a place where I could feel right. And reading those extreme stories was really invigorating. But like you, I was also hungry for some stories of reinvention that I could more closely relate to that I could go, okay, there's a person who kind of started her life over, but she kept a lot of her life too. She's, you know, she made 
made some incremental changes that brought her to a different place. And that's a path I could actually follow. So I love memoirs about ordinary people. I, and I would consider myself an ordinary person. Um, but I also like, I like to recommend books in groups. Like I think it's great if you're going through a phase of life to be prescribed like a set of five books. You need to read this novel about this. And then you need to read this memoir where something wild and crazy happens. And then you need to read this memoir by someone who, who, whose life looks a lot like yours. And then you need to read this, you know, whatever nonfiction book about a particular subject that might really change your life. So yeah, all that's to say, I didn't go into writing this book going, here I am writing the narrative I've been looking for, which is about reinvention on a small incremental scale. But I wrote it and then I went, oh, I just wrote the book that I was looking for. I wrote the book that I wish I'd had when I was 30 and when I was 35. So, Yeah, yeah. Okay, so putting the book aside a little bit, I want to dig into this topic because I think it's really relatable and I think it's really interesting. And you've had what I think I've heard you refer to as a series of small identity crises every few years, which is like so unbelievably relatable. And this idea (laughs) that you want to recalibrate your life a little bit, right? Like not necessarily leave all of the things, right? And again, like I found that really refreshing and I'm interested for you to share some specific examples or like a story or two of one of those recalibration moments. Yeah, I mean, to take us all the way back to your first question, like I, in my weird little brain, and I have so many friends who've said the same thing, I thought I would get out of college and officially become an adult and make one set of decisions that would then stick with me forever. I'm maybe exaggerating a little bit. Like I didn't really think I would stick with every decision forever, but I thought it matters so much what this first job is. And it matters so much what person I am with right now and where I live and which apartment I choose and all this stuff. And, you know, I chose straight out of college to start a job as a consultant with a technology consulting firm, which is hilarious because I was an English major, but I kind of panicked. I was an English major and I thought I was going to go to law school and I actually applied to law school and got in. And then at the last minute went, I don't want to be a lawyer. I think I just wanted to go to school for some more time. So I took this job with a company that was interviewing on campus and I became a consultant and there was a lot that I liked about it, but it really was not the right job for me. But I had a really hard time letting go of that job and admitting it was a fine choice for me to make at that moment, but it doesn't need to be the choice that I make forever. I always have that trouble with jobs where I want to do a good job and it's hard for me to let go and say, okay, I've done a good job with this for you know six years or whatever, and now I'm going to move on and do the next thing. So anytime I got to a professional decision point, that for me was a moment where I was like, oh, quitting is bad. I shouldn't quit. And it's taken me a lot of practice to go, actually quitting is good. It's healthy to decide what you are no longer going to do because that's how you free up time to do what you are going to do next. So professionally, I've had that, that kind of decision point again and again and again. I feel like when I talk to my friends about this stuff, there's so many decision points or, or breaking points really that, that happen at ages other than that whole midlife crisis trope. Like there's a narrative out there that's like, we we have adulthood and everything goes great. And then we turn 40. Ah, it all goes nuts. And then we get back on track and we have a happy, you know, aging process. I feel like so many more of us have moments at various different ages where something needs to change a little bit. And maybe it's, 
you're deciding whether you want to be married or not, or you're deciding whether you want to have kids or not. The whole having kids question is huge. That's an identity crisis for a lot of people going from not being a parent to being a parent or going from assuming your whole life that you would be a parent to deciding that you're not going to be a parent like that. That takes some, some sitting with that decision. That's big. Mm -hmm. Getting unmarried. Like so many of my friends have divorced and some of them have remarried and some haven't, but just deciding that it is acceptable to have had a relationship that was a successful relationship, but it was a successful 12 year relationship and not a successful 70 year relationship. Like letting ourselves close off a phase and move on to a next phase just happens at so many different ages. Yeah, I think that's really well said. Something that listeners will probably know that I've been thinking about a lot for the last like year or two in my own personal life is sort of examining this cultural obsession with the longevity of things that like, you know, we've been friends since we were five, we were married for 60 years, like I've been in this career since I knew I wanted to do this since I was 17. And again, there's nothing wrong with those stories. If that's someone's actual experience, like, of course, that's valid and like worth being talked about. But I think Mm -hmm. much more common is what you're saying, right? This idea that something might have been the right fit for you, whether it was a hobby or a marriage or whatever for, you know, Mm -hmm. four years, five years, 10 years, whatever. And maybe it's not anymore, right? And so like being able to be like, letting yourself, like you said, like wrap up chapters essentially and like acknowledge when something is no longer like best for the next 12 years, right? Or or whatever that might look like. Yeah. It's um, one of the first events I did on this book tour was speaking to a group of investment bankers in New York, which sounds funny. Like you wouldn't read this book and go, oh man, you got to share this with some investment bankers. But I I have a friend who works at this company and she said, I want you to come in and kind of do a book club with us. And we're going to invite employees to read your book and then come in and talk to you. And in the Q and a part of the book club event, someone raised her hand and asked a question similar to what you asked me at the beginning of this podcast. If you could go back and tell your 20 something self something, what would it be? And I said, I would tell myself that it's okay to quit things and that if you've chosen something and you've given it your all and you loved it for a while, but you don't love it anymore and it's taken a turn and now it's making you miserable, you can quit. And it was so funny to look up like as I was giving that answer and you could tell the people in the room who needed to hear it because their eyes just lit up. And I thought, Oh, I hope I don't get in trouble with the HR department here. (laughs) (laughs) And all these people quit their jobs now. (laughs) Right. Like young investment bankers all turning in their badges the next day. Hopefully that didn't happen. Oh my God. Hopefully it did. That would be hilarious. <laughs> what a funny <laughs> side effect of this book, if that's the case. Like, what was the biggest impact your book had? You're like, well, this entire company went under because everybody quit. <laughs> People quitting their jobs everywhere. Oh, that's funny. So, I mean, I think looking at it from a career perspective, right, with especially the idea of quitting or making a recalibration, I think that that's an like an easily relatable thing because like, yeah, you quit the job and then you do a different job, right? Like there's sort of like a clean break period, which doesn't mean the decision-making process is easy. But I'm interested to hear an example maybe of something that's like messier or more nuanced with the recalibration. Because if you're able to narrow it down to like, I need to move to a different apartment. I need to, right? Like those kind of things. But is there an example that you can share of something that maybe wasn't as clear cut where you were like, I just like something doesn't feel right. And I don't really know what that is. Yeah. You're, I mean, you're right. It's, it's a much more, the boundaries are much clearer when you're dealing with professional choices or something like this apartment or that apartment. It's always stickier and fuzzier when it gets to decisions that involve real people. I mean, one of the things that I 
struggled with and I wrote through in this book and, and that I've had a lot of talks with friends about is friendship and how friendships change as you get older. And there can be friendships, just like there can be romantic relationships. There can be friendship relationships in your life that are very nourishing and mutually wonderful for a particular phase of life, but that are not as satisfying in a different phase of life. And one of the things that I went through um, when I was in sort of my mid to late thirties was a period of profound loneliness because I had a lot of great friends in my life who I never saw because they lived far away. And those are my college friends. I, those are like my ride or die friends for life, but they don't live around me. We're scattered all over the country. And so I had made a lot of circumstantial friends at that point in my life who tended to be either just people who lived near me in the city where I lived or who happened to have children, the ages of my children. Therefore I saw them at school things or, you know, we were for whatever circumstantial reason we had become friends and in a particular phase, those friendships had been wonderful, but I had begun to feel very lonely because I had pulled away from some of the circumstances where those friendships formed. I had, for example, you know, this is a, a funny example that I write about in the book, but I had gotten really burned out on school volunteering because when I was a young mom, I thought the way that you are a good mom is you go and you volunteer for every single committee at your kid's school. And then if you really want to do a good job, you volunteer to chair every single committee. <laughs> I just gave too much of my time. I kind of went overboard with it. And I, I reached a point where I didn't want to do that anymore. And so some of the friendships that I had formed in doing those activities stuck, but some of them didn't. And I felt a lot of guilt about that. I felt a lot of guilt about um, not wanting to hang out with certain people anymore or feeling like I need friendships that look and feel different from the friendships I have now, but I, I don't, it's not like I hate my friends. I don't dislike my friends. How can I, how can I live with, I love you friends, but also I need some different friends. That's hard. And I feel like so many of us go through that in kind of middle adulthood. Yeah. I feel like in a lot of ways I'm going through that right now. And so I'm, I'm really glad that you brought that up. This idea, I think loneliness isn't talked about that often, or maybe it is, and just not in conversations that I'm having. Or yeah. if I do hear it talked about, I think I hear it talked about sort of in like a wishing for a romantic partner, um, like situation. Right. Um, yeah. but this idea that you're speaking of, of like having friends, but they're not the right fit or having good friends, but they kind of live all over the country and like feeling lonely as a result. And, uh, I, I don't even know necessarily what my question is, but I'm just hoping that you can talk a little bit more about sort of what that felt like, like what that loneliness felt like. And then the question that you just posed, like, okay, I know that I want different friendships than I have. doesn't mean that I hate my friends. What do I do? Right? Because yeah. you, you've mentioned a couple of times um, seemingly poignant conversations that you've probably had in the last couple of years with people in your life. So it seems like you have gotten more to that place of having like current relationships that are like the nurturing kind that you need for this phase. And so I think like there's something in the bridging of that. And I know you don't have like a, here's the six steps to like not being lonely in friendship, right? Like I know that that's not the thing. <laughs> But I just I do think it's it's one of those things where it's easy to say, like, I was lonely and now I'm not. But there's sort of like a gaping thing in there that I'm interested in, like, knowing more about. Yeah. Well, what I what I found was so there came a point in my life where and I don't want to give away too much of the book, but I had started I was living in Atlanta. I was spending some time up in Nashville because I had I had come up here to sort of briefly run away from my life and have some time by myself, away from my family, away from my everyday setting 
for like three weeks during a summer. I came and house sat for a girl who lives here. And while I was here, I went in to buy some books at the local bookstore. And while I was there, I made friends with the people who ran it. And I said, oh, hey, you know, if you ever need any help, I'm a freelance writer. I write about books all the time. I'd be happy to help you, you know, start a blog or do some social media or whatever. That's a very fast kind of catching you up way of saying um, I ended up with a job in Nashville for this bookstore after I went back home to Atlanta. So I was going back and forth from Atlanta to Nashville for work. And what I often felt when I was in Nashville was that the creative community here is so vibrant and so well integrated with the rest of the community that I always had someone to talk to about whatever I was interested in. There was always someone to go to a concert with. There was always someone to talk about books with. There was always someone to talk about work with. And back in Atlanta, I didn't have that. And I started feeling like, I I think the next phase of my life is located in Nashville. I don't think it's located in Atlanta. I think that's where happiness may lie for me next. But I had the hardest time telling my dear Atlanta friends that I wanted to move because something that can happen in a group of friends is that everybody sort of gels around a circumstance. And if someone veers from that circumstance, the rest of the group can take offense. Like, wait, so you don't want to live here anymore. What's wrong with living here? Or so you don't want to, you don't want to live in this life you have here anymore. Are, Are you saying that all of the rest of us who live in this life are doing something wrong? It was a really really hard series of conversations to have. And it probably wouldn't have been so hard if I had just had them. Like if I had just gone, Hey, I've been feeling kind of miserable. I think I want to try something new, live somewhere else, whatever, but I love you dearly. And it's not you. It's just, I want to go have this life there and you're still my friend and it's going to be great. I, I, I dragged my feet and I built it up as this awful conversation I couldn't have until when I finally finally did have the conversations people with people it wasn't actually that awful i mean there were definitely a few a few folks who when i said we're moving to nashville were like what why why would you want to do that but having conversations makes having more conversations so much easier mm-hmm. yeah i mean i think that's true with mostly anything right you build resilience from the thing from doing the thing yeah totally what do you feel like ultimately gave you I guess internal permission, not that you, because you don't certainly need permission for anyone else, but to walk away from something that was good, but not great. That is a great question. And you're right. It's internal permission is what we all like. So many of the things we think we can't do, we actually can do. And the only person who needs to give us permission is ourselves. For me, what worked was doing things incrementally. Like, I don't think I could have just woken up one day in my life in Atlanta with the set of circumstances I was living in and going, okay, starting tomorrow, it's all different. I'm going to live in a different place. I'm going to have a different job. I'm going to make different priorities. Blammo. I had to do it in little pieces. I had to start by, let me take this job and see how that goes. And then let me go spend some time in that city and see how that goes. And, and as I took these little steps and went, Oh, I like this city. Um, yeah, no, I remember driving around one day before I lived in Nashville, driving around Nashville and going, oh, I just, I love it here. There's so much about this city that feels like the right fit. It's too bad I can't live here. <laughs> and then going, wait a minute, you know, people hire moving vans. Like it's, <laughs> you can 
change things. It's just, you have to do it in pieces. So for me, doing things incrementally and a little bit at a time is so much more doable than just changing everything all at once. And, and by doing things in little pieces, I was able to give myself permission to do the next little piece to go, okay, so you got that job that worked out fine. Nobody burst into flames. What would happen if you considered moving here? When I okay, talked to my husband, could he maybe get a job here? What, you know, what if there are schools where my kids could go there? Let's, let's move into that step. So taking baby steps is kind of how I was able to keep giving myself more and more permission to do something that added up to a big life change. Yeah, I love that. I love it's like, is less sexy, right? Than like huge sweeping changes, but it's so much more doable. Like I think at the story that you just shared, I'm really grateful for because I feel like it really highlights a lot of what we've been talking about, about this idea of like, how do you stay in your life and like, also do whatever Mm-hmm. It takes to like be happy, be okay, right? Which like I know is something that you talk about. So that just there's something in that of like you're staying in the life and yet you're still changing the life. Sometimes I feel like I need reminders that that's possible. It's like the life version of getting a really drastic haircut. Like some people can wake up one day with elbow length brown hair and just go in and go cut it all off and dye it pink. I am not that person. I need to cut it off two inches at a time. And then when it gets really short, I might bleach it a slightly lighter shade of brown and then a slightly lighter shade of brown. And then, okay, I'll try the pink. Like I have to take the steps to get there. I can't do the drastic thing. Yeah. I mean, I also think with a lot of the things, like particularly the things that you're talking about, maybe, you know, like I think the hair, the hair thing is like the perfect analogy, but when it gets into more complicated stuff that the truth is you, you don't know how you feel about like step 12 until you've done all of the steps before it. And I think sometimes like when I get caught in, what's the right thing to do? What's the, like the decision process, right? It's because I'm trying to envision a future or like a version of myself that's so many steps that I'm like, I actually don't know if I'm going to like that thing. I don't know if I'm going to like that city. And so it's like the, the giving yourself permission to make sort of the smaller changes or even just to like experiment, like just try. And it's not always possible to like, just try a new career, right? Or any of those things. But sort of, I challenge myself to look for like the sort of the like, minimum viable, the minimum effective dose, right? Like the, yeah. like what's, what's a small version of this that would let me try it, right? Like with hobbies, like you don't know, like maybe you're going to like skiing, maybe you're not, but like you're not going to know until you like go skiing, you know? Right. And it's so, not like once you buy skis, you've got skis permanently attached to your feet for the rest of your life. Right. You can right. sell the skis back. That was like you, like you were saying earlier, reminding yourself that so little in life is actually permanent is really helpful. When I was debating, um, moving, I actually called a friend who had moved from Atlanta to a different city a couple of years before. And I said, you know, I'm just, I can't shake this idea that I don't, I don't belong here in this city anymore. Can you walk me through your thought process? And how did you, when were you sure that it was the right thing to do to move? And she said, I was never sure. I stood in my driveway and watched the movers putting furniture in that truck and thought, Oh boy, I hope I haven't made a mistake. So it's comforting it's comforting to hear other people say, you may never be sure that what you're doing is the right thing, but that's why taking small steps helps because you can go, all right, I'm going to take one small step. And if I don't love it in a year, I just take a step back or I take a different step. You you can always change things. Yeah. Something sort of along that line that I struggle with, and I'm sure I'm not alone in this is sort of, you mentioned guilt before guilt over 
having a wonderful situation, whatever that is, right? Whether it's like your career or your life choices or relationships, right? Like having this wonderful thing that you chose on purpose, right? The like building blocks that you put in place on purpose and then still feeling like you want to change. How has that been for you? I struggled with it a lot in making the changes that I made in my life because I didn't feel, I didn't feel I deserved to feel dissatisfied because I would look around and go, okay, look, I'm healthy. My family's healthy. We have a roof over our heads. We, we have healthy income. Um, it's crazy to have a perfectly good life yet to feel like you want a different life. That's part of what made it take so long for me to finally start making some changes. Um, but I also struggled with it even with the publication of the book because I thought, what if people, you know, pick this book up and they're like, really? That's what this is about. She was perfectly fine, but she wanted to be different. And now shocking twist, she's perfectly fine somewhere else. Like who cares? You know, I, I was worried people would see this book as just a, you know, a story of privilege and, you know, in a way it is a story of privilege. It's a story of how you can be someone who has great luck and fortune and health and still not have mental and emotional peace and mental and emotional peace aren't tied to any of those things and mental and emotional peace. That is something that everybody does deserve to seek out. And if you feel shame in wanting to change your life and you don't feel like you deserve to seek mental and emotional peace, you can end up really stuck. Yeah. I think, I think that's really well said. The idea that just because maybe you circumstantially like shouldn't in air quotes, right? Like shouldn't feel a certain way doesn't actually change the fact that you do. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I'll be the first to tell you, you know, this is not going to be a satisfying reading experience for you. If you're looking for, you know, a story of drastic, awful misfortune and how I redeemed my life. This is, this is a story of fortune yet not having mental and emotional peace and grappling with how those two things can coexist. And is there a way to still have a fortunate life, but a different fortunate life where there is mental and emotional peace? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that idea that like everyone has the right to seek well-being. Yeah. And it doesn't mean, you know, taking the time to explore these questions, the kind of stuff you and I have just been talking about, taking the time to consider all of that and to care about yourself and your life and where you're going doesn't mean you're doing all that to the exclusion of everything else. It doesn't, the fact that I wrote this book about these things doesn't mean I get up every day and I don't care about, um, you know, name the problem, any of the number of, of fires that are raging in our world right now, our political system, our healthcare system, the climate all sorts of terrible things. I do care about those things. And I, and I want to be able to give more attention to those things. But also, we do all owe ourselves some attention to. Well, and also those aren't mutually exclusive. People can care about many things at the same time. <laughs> Indeed, exactly. Yeah, I mean, and any work of art of any kind, like is not going to encompass every thought you've ever had, right? Or like everything right. that you've ever cared about or worked towards or volunteered towards or anything like that, right? So it's like giving yourself permission to create like what that thing is. And that doesn't mean that that's like the sum total of your like existence and things you care about. Right, right. 
You mentioned early on in our conversation, um, thinking a lot about time, right, and aging. I'm interested in this idea that comes through really strongly in your work about it being that it's never too late to start over, right? Or it's never too late to make a change. Like, I think that we can really weaponize maybe dreams either that we had when we were younger or things like milestones that we thought that we would hit by some like arbitrary age right and I think that that's I think that's really common and I don't even know that I have like a specific question in this but I think it's an important theme and I'm interested if there's anything in that that you want to talk about this idea that yeah like it's not too late to start over like you haven't missed your chance yeah what has been so funny to me as I've gone around and traveled and talked with people is I I sort of knew that people who were roughly at my same stage of life would identify with the book because there are some obvious ties like if you have made it to this point and you've done these things we're going to see eye to eye on a lot of things what I did not expect and what has been really delightful is two groups or sort of age groups of women in particular who I have heard like the most enthusiastic response from one is women who are, and not just women guys too, who are approaching their 30th birthday. There is something about that birthday that just knocks people off their feet. The, the number of readers I have heard from who say, this was exactly what I needed to read because I'm about to turn 30. And I thought that when I turned 30, I would have everything figured out. And I thought I would have this, 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 and this, but instead my life is here. And so I've been feeling paralyzed and I've been feeling like I'm a failure. And I, there's something about 30 that people build up as this official adulthood age by which you should have everything figured out. So that group of, of people sort of at that age has responded well to the message of, if it's never too late. But then also, and this is so funny, there have been so many women in their 60s and 70s who have come through like the signing line to get their book signed. And as I'm, you know, writing my name in the front of their book, they lean in and they the laugh. They have this sort of conspiratorial chuckle. And they're like, just so you know, this whole never getting life figured out thing, that doesn't end. Like <laughs> they're they're kind of warning me, and then they're also kind of just like laughing, like, yeah, so you made it this far. Guess what? You are going to go through this reinvention process forever, which is a little daunting, but also is really comforting to kind of know, oh, okay, so this is this is it. Like we just we keep reinventing as long as we're alive. That's what it means we are alive. Yeah, and being able to let go of whatever those like really tight expectations were of exactly how things would go or exactly how things would look by a certain time. Yeah. yeah. Is there something in particular that you can mention um, that maybe is like a milestone thing that you're like, I thought by, you know, X, A, by 35, by 40, like I thought this would happen and like you were just like laughably wrong? Oh, gosh, I feel like I'm I'm laughably wrong all the time. Um, I there haven't there have been like some small things like I thought I would have kids by this age or this job by this age. But those for me personally are actually the milestones I did hit. I, I did check off a lot of the boxes that I had in mind. Like I'm going to get married in my twenties and I will have my first child before I turn 30 and I will have a job in this industry by this time. Those actually were the ones I checked off. But what I found was I assumed there would be a corresponding sense of peace and satisfaction that came with checking those boxes. And that didn't happen. That's really why I was so shaken 
when I got sort of midway through my 30s and went, wait, I checked all the boxes. I did all the things I thought I was supposed to do by now. And I still feel, I kind of feel like I did right when I get out of school. I feel kind of lost. I feel like I don't know who I am. I'm not entirely satisfied with my daily existence. Whoops. (laughs) Like I thought checking the boxes was going to make me feel a certain way. And it didn't. Like that was the thing that is most laughable to me is that I thought I could actually like fill out some formula for my life and do a certain number of things and actions and jobs and relationships and then go, ah, there's that feeling of peace I've been looking for. Yeah. So getting sort of on the other side of that, you know, particular, I guess, like mini life crisis, right? (laughs) But do you... I feel like when that happens, then the bubble bursts of, okay, like this paradigm of like how I thought my life would be or how I thought the world operated, right? Like maybe that's not true or definitely that's not true. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like that gave you any, I mean, I'm sure it was like terrifying at first, but like any sort of comfort? Like, are you at the point now where you like don't expect that, okay, well, when I publish the book, this is going to happen, right? Like, have you been able to sort of like step out of that, check the boxes, like be happy, like hamster wheel? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, some of it is, like I said, some of it is just bone deep. Like I want to check a box and get an A plus on a task and then feel great. I accept that that is something my little wiring wants, but I also am more familiar now and accepting of the fact that that just isn't how life goes. Like the book is a great example. The book came out and, you know, there was always a part of my brain that was like, once you complete this collection and it's published, you are going to feel like you have accomplished everything and it's going to feel great forever. And then there's another part of my brain that's like, no, you're not. And I, I knew my own patterns well enough to know that any milestone I hit feels great for like five minutes. And then on minute six, I'm looking up going, what next? What next? So I've you know, right now the book has been out for, let's see if people are hearing this in August, it's been out for four months and it's been a wonderful, very exciting four months, but I'm, I'm already starting to go, well, now what? Mm-hmm. And I, you know, there's part of my brain that didn't want to go. Now what part of my brain wanted to go, yay, you did the book. Now you just be happy forever. <laughs> Yeah, it's like being able to lean into the cyclical nature of things. It's like sometimes you're in the creating phase and sometimes it's completed and you're in the, you know, let's say promotion phase or whatever comes next. And then sometimes you're in the questioning before you get to the new thing, right? That like all of that is part of the cycle of like making anything. It is. And I have I have a few friends who are, um, they're kind of scattered around the country, but they're writers who are in sort of a similar season of life as I am. They've had books that came out within the past year and they are they've gotten through a lot of the promotional cycle and it's quieting down. And now it is time to kind of go back into the creating phase. And we are all having that same realization of like, Oh, Oh, it's hard to write a book. Oh, we're right back. It doesn't get easier just because you did one. <laughs> we're all right back there. Okay. This is going to be hard again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just like accepting a, that that's true and B like, it's worth it anyway. And like, this is a kind of hard that I like, I'm willing to do and enjoy doing. Right. And like, no, anything I do is going to be hard. So it might as well be the thing that I, that I love. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The last thing that I really want to ask you, and this is like, I guess a kind of a specific question, but given the format of a lot of the writing that you do, what Mm -hmm. do you think makes a compelling essay? Well, first of all, I, I would just mention that there are so many different types of essays. So there are scholarly 
essays um, where, you know, someone is asking a question and then using research to sort of answer it. And I find that satisfying in some ways because I love to learn something new. I love to take a perspective that I've always held and read about why there's another way of looking at it. I love having my mind changed. That is a really satisfying feeling to me to be like, oh my gosh, I always thought this and now I think something else. I have just grown as a person. But for this particular type of essay, which is more of a personal essay and kind of personal storytelling, I kind of like the same thing. I like for my mind to be changed a little bit as a reader. Like I like to read a story about some scenario or experience that a person had and at the beginning think, oh, I know where this is going and then get to the end of it and go, oh, wow, I didn't know it was going to go there. I love that. I love that with books. You know, getting back to what you and I were talking about, the experience of being surprised and delighted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I enjoy that very much. And I also, I'm a huge fan of autobiographical writing that feels like I'm in a conversation with somebody. And I was just talking about this with another writer recently about how sometimes people say, oh, so-and-so's writing. It feels like you're having a conversation with a friend. And some people take that as, as an insult, like it doesn't feel like literature. It just feels like you're having a chat with a friend. But when I say that about a book, I mean the connection has been so natural and so personal that I've almost forgotten I'm holding a book in my hands. Mm -hmm. And I feel like someone is speaking directly to me. And there is an art to writing that way. There is an art to writing in language that draws people in and makes that connection and makes you forget that you're turning pages. And I, I love that in, you know, whether it's a memoir and essays or just a memoir, I I love that connection. Yeah. I love that too. I think one of the things that I'm always looking for, I guess, no surprise, like given the work that I do is just like hearing the truth, like, or hearing what is true for someone. Right. And this idea that like, we know what truth feels like when we hear it and when we read it. I think oftentimes those are the sentences that we like frantically underline, right? Whether it's like <laughs> fiction or memoir or anything like that. Of like, It's just something that feels so true in a way that's like settling, right? Like I think a lot yeah. of that is what I'm, I'm looking for. And that idea of like it being a conversation, I, I totally relate to that. I mean, for me personally, like one of my I feel like most deeply held beliefs is the power of honest conversations of all kinds and like what can transform and bloom for us when we build relationships that allow for more than just small talk, right? Like being able to have those honest conversations, whether it's like with a person, whether it comes like through the form of a book, there's like something in that of like being able to just talk about things that are real, even if they're mundane and real, but just still real. Yeah. And, and I love when a book gives me or an essay gives me language for something that I've been thinking in a fuzzy way, but I hadn't pinned down in words yet. Like having somebody else put to words something that I've been feeling is so helpful. It's like, oh, thank you for that shorthand. I've been like wrestling with this feeling and you just like put it into a sentence for me. That's great. I love that experience. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, I love that too so much. I mean, so I guess sort of coming off of that on this, I guess, like subject of real talk or honesty or something, what's one thing that you have recently been wishing that more people were open and honest about? Like, what would you love to hear talked about more? Oh, so many things. Um, I mean, I think getting back to what we were talking about, friendship is one adult friendship. It's people don't, we don't have as many honest conversations when friendship starts to go 
wrong or starts to get complicated. And then, you know, I feel like I've read so many hilarious essays about ghosting and friend breakups and how that is so hard and no one knows how to handle it. But I also feel like so many of those situations could be avoided if we actually talked through our friendships as we were in them. Like, you know, I'm not feeling comfortable with you right now for these reasons, or, you know, it hurts my feelings when you do this or whatever. Like we don't, we don't talk about the friendship itself while we're in it. And then we get to this point where we're like, how do I get out? This is so awkward. Yeah, I think that's incredibly relatable. I I feel like my selfish reaction is like, okay, but what do we do when that happens? And maybe you don't have any magic answers, but is there one thing that like, you feel like has been helpful? Is the answer for you just like have the conversation and have it sooner? Like what has worked for you? Have the conversation and have it sooner is good advice, although I'm also reluctant to take it. I mean, I'm like you where I'm like, oh, isn't there a way where we can just, no no one ever has to talk about anything hard? (laughs) Wouldn't that be great? Oh, no, it's always better when we talk about things. Yeah, and I think the sort of this idea, especially with friendship, like I'm interested in, more honest conversations that don't necessarily have an agenda, right? Like it's one thing, you know, taking like a breakup conversation, right? Whether it's like a friend breakup or a mentor breakup, whatever, like there's an end in mind, right? Like I am going to have this conversation so as to change the structure of this relationship, right? Like this is going somewhere or quitting a job, right? That it's like, there's like a clear agenda. And this idea that you're speaking to of like, sort of assessing the friendship, like having like a check-in conversation or like a, how are you feeling about this? Like, are your needs getting met? There's like something in that that's in all the relationships in our lives, like very interesting to me right now. Mm -hmm. And I don't think, I mean, I certainly was never taught how to do that. Yeah. I have a, one particular sort of subset of of friends. I was speaking about my college friends earlier who are just my, my dearest, dearest group of friends. I also have this little subset here in Nashville and we get together periodically. And often it's like on somebody's back porch after, you know, everybody's come home from work and put their kids to bed and we'll get together and talk. And I was just thinking, as you were speaking about a friend of mine who in that group, she asked the most wonderful question. Like when we are together and we haven't caught up in a long time and maybe the vibe among us has changed a little bit. She will look at one of us and go, what, how can we support you? What, what can we do for you? It's just the sweetest, it's the sweetest question. And like, maybe we all need to be asking each other that more often. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. I think that's a great place to wrap up. I would love to ask you if you could leave our community, the listeners, with one call to action, what would it be? Maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take? What would you love for folks to do? Oh, that's good. I would, oh my gosh, I'm like frozen. I don't know what thing to say. You know what? Here's, here's a question I would leave people with. And this is a writing prompt that I use sometimes when I talk to people about writing. And it's a question. It's a question that I ask in an essay in this book called Mermaids and Destiny. And I'm I'm probably going to quote myself wrong, but it's something like, who were you before you wondered who you were? And it's something that I, I've told students in the past when I'm speaking about um, if you want to write about your authentic self, go back through your memories, come back through your memories and find you at a point before you were having that. What the hell am I doing with my life feeling? Maybe it was just five years ago. Maybe it was when you were five. (laughs) Find that version of you and sit with her for a while. That's, 
I think for anybody who is sort of at a what the hell am I doing with my life moment, that would be my my prompt or my call to action is go back and find that version of you and sit with her for a minute and see see what she valued and see what made her feel satisfied and figure out if there are parts of her life that you can bring into your life now. Mm, I love that so much. What's the best place for people to find you and say hi online? Do you have a favorite way to connect with new folks? Um, I love Twitter. I love Instagram. Um, Those are probably the two that I use most. I do have, I do have a newsletter that I send out kind of weekly ish, kind of not. That is a fun way for me to send out like things that I've read or things that are interesting. But yeah, Twitter or Instagram. Those are kind of my faves. I love and it. My, I, website, my website is just my name, marylaurafilpot.com. And yeah. all that stuff is there. Yeah. And I will put links to all of that in the show notes. Mary Laura, thank you so much. Thank you. This was fun. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. Speaking of the Real Talk Radio family, I want to give a huge shout out to Adam Day, my producer and sound engineer. Adam created the music for this show, and he makes everything work and flow and sound way better than I ever could. You can find him and his music and his sound editing work at adamday.net. So go say hi. And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is a 100% listener-supported show. The show is made possible by awesome people like you. So if you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, if you want lots of bonus content, plus other fun opportunities and extras, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $1 or more per episode. I can't tell you how much your support means to me. It's literally what keeps the show going, and it'll be so much fun to get to know you better after you've joined our community. So until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can. And no matter what, we're in this together.